Good afternoon and welcome to the show. Well, are you feeling that Christmas is right around the corner? Well, it certainly is. And, um, you know, if you're listening to me, maybe you're out visiting friends and family or you're out doing the last minute shopping, you know, after all, Santa's just around the corner. At this time of year, it's always great to kind of reflect back on uh, what has happened throughout the year and some of our great guests that we've had. So I want to share some of those segments with you today. And uh, we, we've got a bunch. So uh, we're going to get started. I've got Mike Chastoski with me today in the studio. He is Executive Vice President. You've heard him here on Simply Real Estate several times. Always great to have him come and share with us a lot of the knowledge that he carries with CBRE. Thanks for dropping in. Thanks for having me back. When we talk about real estate, most of our listeners, of course, are of the residential mind. <laughs> and, uh, you know, it's been a hell of a year in the residential market when we talk about the numbers of going like just absolutely screaming through the top there in uh, March and April. It was absolutely silly, out of control. And then we watched the market, you know, not all the way back, you know, quite frankly, we're still up year over year from, you know, October and November uh, from 2016, for sure. We're still in the positive category, not quite as much as everybody was hoping. You know, the main markets, though, that are driving a lot of what's going on, of course, is commercial and industrial. Unlike the residential market that did have a kind of huge dip, you didn't see that same bump, did you, uh, back in, in April? No, we're sitting with some of the lowest vacancies in the GTA that we've ever seen. We're talking low single digits, both on office and on industrial. When you start talking about vacancy numbers, you know, when we talk about residential, you know, 1%, half a point, you know, 1.5%, those are catastrophic numbers because it's basically there is no inventory for people to rent, you know, an apartment, a condo, whatever it is. Uh, but when you talk about vacancies with commercial, what is deemed a threshold number that people start saying, hey, we're running out of inventory? Below 10. Really? 10%? Bad for the economy. If a new company doesn't have a space to live in that's readily available, or we have a tenant that's growing that wants to move right. and doesn't have a place to move, that constrains growth. We'd like to see somewhere between 8 and 12% vacancy across the board. We're sitting at 2 or 3 yeah, that's a low number for you guys. That's a real low number. I mean, even even as a typical a residential practitioner, you know, over the years, I still know commercial two or three. That's that's kind of rock bottom. It forces tenants to stay where they are, and landlords are taking advantage of that fact. So rents are creeping up. So rents are creeping up. Also, rules and regulations are a little different in your neck of the woods than, let's say, in the residential neck of the woods. With rent control being passed residentially this year for anything, rent control is not the same in commercial, is it? No, it's completely market-driven. So it's supply and demand, and it's up to you to negotiate the best deal you can with your landlord through your broker, looking at what the availabilities are. Tenants will look at where they can go and then make a decision if they are going to go bigger space, smaller space, or stay where they are. The one thing for landlords is commercial, you know, it was running higher vacancies before and it was a little bit tougher for some people to own it, especially the smaller investors. I mean, you've got a lot of big players that own a lot of the real estate in the world. I mean, there's probably, I'm not going to say a handful because there's more than that, but there's a lot of big players out there, isn't there? Probably 75% of the office space downtown is controlled by six or seven pension funds. Wow. And is it the pension funds now that are controlling most of the market there? The bigger stuff. I kind of delve a little bit into the world when I start playing around with the potential of developing buildings and developments and things like that. We buy from apartment owners, not 
condominium owners, obviously, when with a simple investor. A lot going on in the marketplace. One of the big things that I talked about this week, I was on with uh, Jerry Agar. We were talking about the cancellation of another development, pre-construction, downtown Toronto. It was 168 units out of nowhere, basically. All the buyers ended up getting an envelope in the mail. And this is how it was done. They uh, Really, no warning. It's like, by the way, here's your deposit. So everybody got their deposit back. That's a positive thing. But the developer said they uh, they couldn't afford to do it. With the delays in development, whether it be through bank requirements, too much equity needed if they don't have it, or the planning. If they've launched before they had full approvals and things got caught up a little bit, costs kept on going up. Cement doesn't go down, labor doesn't go down, steel doesn't go down, but their prices remain stagnant. June 2016 is when they did the sales release. They blow it out. Hot market in June back last year. Everybody wanted to be buying something. Detached, semi-detached, we're going through the roof. So everybody jumps on the bandwagon and says, hey, let's buy. Builder gets the deposits, everything. They canceled 14 or 15 months later after a release saying we can't afford it, you know, citing a 13% increase in cost to build. Now, how is it possible that in one year they say there's a 13% increase to the cost of construction? Should have they not factored in the fact that construction costs are going to go up? You know, they were they were targeting a 2019 closing, which to me seems a little bit short anyways, like three years. That doesn't sound right in the first place because things take a lot longer than that. Did they completely miss? Where could something like this have gone wrong? People make mistakes. They misstep. But I think it's more time. People get caught up in wanting to get out to the market quickly because there's pressure on them from their banks and internally from their partners to sell these units. And everybody wants to sell into a frothy market. Should have you have sold at that time? If you didn't have full approvals, probably not. Should have waited. And there's more and more sites and deals where you're going to see this happening because people sold too long ago and the prices to building is beyond making sense to build it anymore. In 14 months, they said our costs have gone up 13%. I'm sorry, I call foul on that one. I don't agree that that's the real motivation, perhaps lack of financing. Maybe the bank pulled it, but they just don't want to admit out in the real world that they can't get their financing. Or they can make more money. Could it be money motivated? Could be. Could be it's it's you all, don't worry you can you can you can throw it out there don't don't hold back we're we're all motivated that way right and people have to realize 168 units 200 bucks a foot that's a lot of money probably between 25 and 30 million dollars yep more we only have so many projects we can do so if you can get another 25 million that's a different story but people have to ask themselves what if it went the other way what if it went down 200 bucks would you walk from your deposit people started to we've talked to you know quite a few lawyers over the last few months and the guys that were buying in march and april and then had to start closing come june july appraisals weren't coming in and there was a few people that walked away from those could you see that being the motivation though is it motivated are we seeing more Cancellations, I think we are going to see more cancellations because maybe some of it's going to be money motivated, but I think a lot are cost motivated, that they waited too long, they got held up, and they no longer can make sense of building at the price they originally sold for. So far this year, 1,500 units have cancelled. 
I believe five, six developments. Last year, we saw one of the major players turn around and said that their sales were not sufficient, which is really hard to believe that somebody can't sell out in a marketplace like they did last year. Mm. Provincial government, they talked a lot about helping builders be able to get product to the marketplace a little bit sooner, you know, maybe cutting a little bit of red tape. One of the things that we're obviously seeing are some delays. We know that there's an inventory problem. You and I recognize that. Is there any help coming down the pipe? I think they're making some initiatives. They announced the fair housing program where they're taking some government-owned sites and instituting them to put them out to the market and forcing builders to build affordable to own and affordable rentals. So the government is going to turn around and um, give the land to the developer, of course, because they're that nice. No, no, (laughs) not when we're selling it. No, no, but certainly the price may reflect some of these requirements that the government has to help people get more affordable housing. Why would a builder do it? Because they're great sites. So they can still make money on the balance of it in the market. Does it make sense for a builder to do it? Are they allowing them to get enough profit or is the government going to oversee their profit line as a builder? Because quite frankly, I think most of the builders would tell them to take a flying leap. We'll know very shortly. We have a number of sites in the market today. Right. And the interest level is very good from very qualified, large builders. It's the quality of the site too. These are very good sites. When builders are calling you and acting the way they are currently, you know you're going to get decent offers. But how much inventory could they actually create? If we take a look at the numbers, and you know these numbers probably better than anybody because CBRE, the biggest company in the world for this kind of thing, you've got the people that are crunching the numbers. But the truth be told, it's not that we're short 10,000, 20,000, 30,000 units. We're short in the six digit number as far as units for the future. Yes. How can the government all of a sudden pop up? Can they give enough land that you can develop 10,000 units? Because that's like putting a Band-Aid on this thing. They have the land. The question is taking it through the planning process. We can't reverse all those policies through the planning process, the infrastructure costs, and going through all that overnight. Right. It took us 20 years to get here. It's going to take us 20 years to get back. If you take a look at the number of properties required over the next 20 years, what's that number going to look like? It's huge. We have these conversations because builders call us, large ones, that are grinding through land very quickly. And they have inventory issues. So if you have an office full of people, you want to do something. But some of these big builders do 50 to 100 acres a month. And then the high rise on top of it. So it will take a huge amount of land. And now that the feds have announced increase in immigration over the next three years, we have to figure out where we're going to put them. We're running out of space to build on. Where is it going to come from? Those C-class office buildings, those old retail are going to be torn down and the density is going to be increased significantly. The municipalities want us to retain some of that office. So you're going to rip down a five or eight or 10 story office building and you're going to build a 50 story tower with 10 stories of office below it. Let's talk about that new development where Stollery's was. They look like they're going to put about 10 floors of hotel. They're going to do retail, maybe some business and then condominium, you know, going to the sky. Are we going to see more and more of this kind of design? Well, I think with the lack of sites for hotels, they have to start looking at going into a mixed-use type of development. For that hotel to go and buy that site just for a hotel doesn't make financial sense. And the municipalities like the idea that hotels are mixed into 
mixed-use developments. So what are we looking for in 2018? Where do you think we're going to be? I think you're going to see a rebound nicely of the residential market. Mm-hmm. Right now, we're seeing the less expensive stuff, million, two, million, three, and down, yep. still moving very well. Okay. The condos across the board are doing extremely well. But I think we're going to see a rebound of that single-family market in spring that people are going to see similar to Vancouver. After we had that six-month lag after the tax came in, things are going to go back to normal. Okay. Prices never really adjusted a whole lot. Do you think the mortgage rules are going to hurt everybody? Yes, but people will adjust. Mom and dad will come up with more money. Are you setting your kids up, Mike? Is that what's happening? I only have one, so he gets everything. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and he knows it. Mike, it's always a pleasure to have you on the show. I greatly appreciate you coming in today. And uh, thanks for sharing you know, all your stuff with us. Thank you very much. CBRE website, is that the best place to go? CBREland.ca. Listen, Mike, always a pleasure. Folks, that was Mr. Mike Chestahoski joining me. Coming up after this break, I've got Dave Butler, and we're going to be talking about what is the new thing happening in the mortgage market. So stay with us. We'll be right back after this. And welcome back. I want to talk about some new changes in the mortgage qualification. Somebody that uh, we definitely lean on and love to talk to is Mr. Dave Butler from Butler Mortgage. And uh, hey, Dave, how are you? Hey, how you doing, Todd? You and I always have some great conversations, but this one, this one is the one that, you know, we were kind of fearing uh, that, uh, you know, they're going to make some rule changes and they did. So maybe you can uh, give our listeners a bit of an update on what has transpired and what we are looking at currently in the mortgage market? Yeah, currently what we're looking at is the the kind of big change that we're all talking about, we're all hearing about, is that come January 1st, all mortgage applications will have to qualify on what they call a stress test. And that is basically where the bank will use a higher interest rate to determine if you are going to be able to afford this mortgage down the road. Uh, so basically, the the old school days was if I'm getting a rate of, let's say, 2.99 and I'm submitting to the bank for an application for approval, they would just qualify the rate at the 2.99. The difference being that come January 1st, they will not be qualifying it on 2.99, for instance. It would be at, say, 4.99. So you basically have to be able to show the bank that you can afford this mortgage down in the future when rates may be increased. So it's been a big change that we're seeing. Certainly the media has picked it up and uh, it's the story. This stress test has actually been in play for a little while, but just not in all aspects. Is that correct? That is correct. So a couple years ago with all insured mortgages, so that is when you are putting down less than 20%, the government had introduced this stress test and it's been in for a couple years now. Uh, They also had a stress test when you are putting down 20% down or more, but the stress test only applied for variable rate mortgages and one-year, two-year, three-year, and four-year fix. So if you were looking for a five-year fix or higher, you were just able to qualify on whatever the rate was. This is that final change now where there's no more ability to sneak it in on the five-year fixed rate without the qualifying rate. You are now, everyone come January 1st is going to have to qualify on the same rate. You and I, a year ago, uh, you know, we were talking about watching when TD kind of bumped up their rates, if you remember, and you and I were both saying, hey, listen, come spring, they'll kind of do a little bit of adjustment, which they ended up doing. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you and I truly thought that they would put this and enforce this new stress test because it really does have a huge adverse effect to the marketplace, even after everything else that's happened this year. I mean, you, you know, like the laundry list is getting so long. 
you know, we get it. People wanted to control the marketplace. Probably they've gone overboard with all the new rules, regulations, interest rates going up. Now you add this. How many more breaks can people actually turn around and try to force onto this marketplace? Well, it's interesting because if we were being handcuffed and thrown into jail, for instance, this would be a scenario where we are being shackled at every limb effectively. So, um, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's definitely going to have an impact in what I would call the owner-occupied market. So anybody that is out purchasing an owner-occupied home, um, come January 1st, you are now no longer able to buy as high as you could previous to that date. So, I mean, I think it's going to have an impact on that particular segment of the market. You know, it's funny, though, I think, you know, you and I have talked before, I think this is, interestingly enough, this could be a way for investors, real estate investors, to actually find their way back in. Uh, you know, one thing I have noticed in the last little while is as the market has started to shift a little bit, and we are seeing uh, less maybe buyers out there in terms of the regular real estate market, we're seeing a lot more investors pop out. I had a lot of investors in the summer and just kind of biding their time. They didn't want to put in offers and compete with 10 other people on a property and maybe overpay for it. So they've been waiting. And those people are starting to come out of the woodwork. And I have a feeling we will see more of them coming out of the woodwork after January 1st. There's a lot of heat on you guys right now. A lot of people are trying to kind of get in under that rule. Are you finding that you're getting that much busier? Yeah, it's been very noticeable on our end. There has been a mad dash to the finish line. Uh, we are finding everyone and anyone that's in the in the real estate market and looking at buying a home, uh, they are trying to get it done now. I've also got many, many, many refinance applications um, that we wouldn't have normally got previously. So a lot of people are just trying to get in under that wire, uh, trying to take advantage of that. But we are. I mean, we've seen a massive spike in activity comparatively to any other year before. is, is looking larger than I've ever seen. Are you finding that people are, st are, are locking in more of a five-year than trying to go for a rate and go with a three-year or two-year? Yeah, I mean, it really just depends. There's some banks that have come out with some pretty aggressive two-year and three-year specials. Certainly, we've had people looking at that. But in terms of, you know, is there more people People taking fixed rates these days than a variable rate? The answer is definitely yes. I mean, right now it's very uncommon to get asked about a variable rate simply because it seems to be kind of the, the not hot commodity with the fact that it did have two increases this year. Um, and I think certainly people are banking on the fact that rates could rise again next year. And so we've noticed that the general public is definitely starting to move more towards fixed rates. Certainly a five-year fixed rate is kind of the popular product, but we have seen some banks trying to get in with some two-year and three-year specials at some pretty low money. And uh, we've seen some clients definitely uh, try to take advantage of that. Dave, you know, you and I have this conversation every single year. And what we talk about, obviously, is, you know, rates typically come up a little just before Christmas. You know, we look at the spring market, they typically go down. Do you think, do you think that if the market starts to slow down, the bank might start giving people a little deeper discounts? Now, they still have to qualify, obviously, at post, but are we going to go back to a little bit more competition in the banks? Because they certainly haven't been that competitive this year. <laughs> I agree. I think you and I both hope so. You know, we definitely, this, this year has been an interesting year. We've seen the banks really tighten up on their margins. Uh, which means certainly that that doesn't equate to the general public getting the same type of rates or the discounts we were getting before. So um, I think definitely, I mean, you know, as far as you and I, you know, have in our history of together, I mean, we've, we've always we've always been able to see that there is definitely a pattern on these rates. End of the year, uh, you know, you're usually going to see a little tightening up. 
beginning of the year, you'll see them start to eventually open up for that big spring market. Um, but it's interesting. I mean, this is this has been a lot of stuff in 2017. I believe was not predictable. So you know, or or, or stuff that we had looked at, um, and now at the end of the year we look at it and say, wow, that that's you know some of the things we could see, but some of the things that we saw see from the bank standpoint in terms of rates was very different. So I mean, it's it's something we're all keeping our eye on in this industry. Um, but yeah, certainly. I mean, we're all kind of hoping a pattern stays true. This is kind of a clamp up time, but certainly come in the new year, we're all kind of hoping things go back to normal in terms of interest rates and seeing the patterns that we see. Yeah, excellent. Listen, you know, it's been it's been a heck of a ride 2017, Dave. And, uh, you know, thanks for always contributing and uh, and keeping everybody informed. My pleasure. Thank you. So, folks, you can always reach Dave Butler at Butler Mortgage. And uh, when we come back, we've got Romana King joining us. So stay with us. We'll be right back after this. And welcome back. If you're just tuning me in right now, I've got Romana King joining me. Yep, you're familiar with that name. Great guest. She is an author. She is a real estate expert. Um, you've read a lot of her articles in Money Sense magazine, and it's great to have her join us once again. And uh, welcome back to the show. Hello, Todd. How are you? <laughs> I'm great, thanks. You know, uh, Ramana, it's always nice to to touch base with you. You know, every once in a while, because you've got such a great perspective on the real estate market. But you and I have so much to talk about. You know, if if we don't chat for about a month, it seems like the whole world does. Uh, you know, another flip flop, something else going on the real estate world. And I always like to start out at the west end of Canada, where you are currently, uh, out in BC, and maybe you can bring us up to date on. What's happening in the BC market? Well, in the BC market, um, after we know that you know things slowed down a little bit um, with the foreign buyers tax in 2016, and then there were additional uh, announcements by the BC government before the BC Liberals were ousted, um, and it slowed down. But you know what? The BC market is as strong as ever. It bounced back up. Um, we're not entirely surprised. Um, even with the closing of the loophole with the five-year fixed or if you put under 20, 20% down on your home, um, uh, even with those announcements, we've bounced back up. And, and I'm not surprised. I mean, you still have a lot of demand because the interest rates are low. When we talk about your BC market, though, um, you know, when you and I uh, had kind of watched the, the market go down, there's always that kind of underlying tone that, you know, the foreign buyers had, had bailed out. But now it seems like, uh, from my understanding, they've accepted the foreign buyer tax and they've, you know, jumped right back into the market. They have. I mean, that said, it, it's good to sort of take a look at, you know, where the foreign buyers um, are in the marketplace. And, and I believe the, the latest statistics from, uh, you know, the real estate boards in Vancouver, they took a look at, you know, where the foreign involvement was. And they found that, you know, in, in January of 2017, it was just under 4%, so it was about 3.7% of the residential purchases were by foreign buyers. Uh, by October of, the, that, of this year, the same year, 2.61%. Um, it sort of fluctuated up and down between that 3.7 to, to sort of 2.5, a little under 2.5. But it's, it, you know, we've, between 25 to 4% of the, of the market is foreign buyers and the, and the rest are, are domestic. So there's still a strong demand by, you know, Canadian residents, BC residents to buy BC housing. 
Now, when we when we talk about the foreign buyers, though, in, and I remember you and I having this conversation last year in 2016, um, it was a much more significant number um, back in 2016 for a, a few months there. You know, I think I think when we saw the run up come April, May, and June in 2016, you know, BC was you know a much higher number. I mean, you know, not not sure the exact number, but I mean, we heard everywhere from seven to fifteen percent of all sales were being done by foreign buyers. And that's the thing is, is we're not quite sure because the way we were calculating foreign buyer involvement was different than how we're calculating it now. Now it's based on that foreign buyer's tax. You know, we're, we've got hard concrete evidence of who's actually uh, not designated as a Canadian resident or a permanent resident or exemption from a foreign buyer tax um, because of a, of a provincial mandate and must pay that tax. And prior to that, we didn't have that. So it could have been as high as 15%, but we're not quite sure. It was sort of an extrapolated number uh, based on a number of different factors. Um, so it could have dropped quite significantly or maybe not. The math is fuzzy. Yeah. You know, it was interesting because I was on uh, with Jerry Agar this week and we were talking about a situation actually out in, in, in your neck of the woods in BC. And we were talking about some farmland and currently the tax structure, you know, they were taxing it as if it was worth $87,000 and the people just sold it for about $9.1 And everybody's up in arms saying, hey, these farmers are taking advantage of the tax breaks, but then they're reaping all the reward on the other side. Are, are you seeing more of that happening in the BC market? I think even before the foreign buyers tax was coming in, we saw that there was an encroachment onto farmland. And, you know, there there is a, a benefit, and I want to be very careful about how I use that word, for farmers or people that currently own land that's designated as agricultural, they do get a tax benefit. That said, um, I think there's a bit of a different mindset with individuals, and I'm, I'm talking about individuals that own agricultural land in BC. They're not very quick to try and reap those rewards. Um, a lot of them are trying to find family members that will continue on the farming tradition. And I'm, I'm not exaggerating when I say that, and I don't think it's just in BC. I think we see the same in Alberta and Saskatchewan and even Manitoba. A lot of people are actually struggling to, to maintain some sort of agricultural business within the family. I think that's why we saw a huge back last to the uh, federal government closing the tax loopholes or closing at least the tax benefits of keeping on farmland in uh, in a family um, that said there are people that are cashing out because they can't they can't the family members don't want to continue or can't afford to continue and they are getting the benefit I think there's a lot more at stake than just whether or not they're getting a benefit from cashing out on land and a tax benefit of that there's um, a whole series of you know decades of investing in that land um, where they didn't see all that much uh, benefit unless they're going to cash out. So do we see encroachment on farmland? Yes, that is an issue. A separate issue is the fact that there are different tax structures. I know that there was a realtor that was defending the, the purchase of agricultural land to um, you know, Chinese buyers. They were Chinese buyers, and people were very upset by this because the, the taxes paid were not that significant. Um, and, you know, her argument was, well, no one else stepped up. I mean, that was the best offer. 
Yeah. You know, it's interesting because I don't know if all our listeners, uh, you know, understand that when you have for a farmland, and let's just hypothetically say we've got about 100 acres, um, when it gets resold and, you know, people have this huge run up, it's not all capital gains exempt because mm-hmm. what they do is they actually calculate out around the primary residence or let's say the house that people live in. And they say, you know, basically, you know, they do work out for, you know, there's a percentage that and it's a lot lower than people think. You know, so if they if they get nine million dollars for a hundred acres, let's say, so you're you know you're averaging something in the neighborhood of ninety ninety thousand an acre, they only allow so much capital gains. Um, I think it's only know. one and a half hectares, which is not yeah. a lot of land. <laughs> no, so they, they they reduce it. So I you know a lot of people aren't aware that you know sure a, a farmer's cashing out, but the the provincial government is you know doing exceptionally well on these sales. And looking at the numbers, I mean, you've got almost eight thousand market transaction um, in just January of this year, and only fifty three were were farms. You know, people are are outraged because they're seeing anomalies. They're seeing, you know, the highlighted media is highlighting one particular example and showing how it's different than what they're used to. And there's still so many factors involved in that. You know, farmers. The reason why they get maybe a tax credit isn't because they're being exempt on that capital gains tax. It's because they've got a lot of capital expenses. Um, but they can offset that the income earned on the, the sale of the land. That's why they're getting that benefit, which is because they're running a business and they're being taxed on that on the on, on the land, and they can exempt some of the the the, uh, the tax based on that that the, the business uh, expenses. You know, there is still concern in the BC market and, and perhaps in the in the Cal and the Alberta market that agricultural land is now being eyed for potential development and people are buying that land and they're basically land banking, buying a bunch of land and hoping at some point they can develop it. As an investor, you and I both would agree that makes a lot of sense because there's we can't create more land. So obviously yeah. anything from the when you start looking at, you know, the suburbs on the outskirts of any of the major major metropolitan metropolises, then we're going to turn around and say, hey, listen, there's only one way it goes. It either goes up or it goes out. So, Mm. you know, obviously people doing this land banking makes a lot of sense. And some of this is foreign money that's coming in because they're investing in the future of mm-hmm. what they can possibly do. Um, you know, and, and again, as you said, you know, some people are getting their knickers in a knot a little because they're seeing this stuff and they're saying, hang on, it's not being taxed properly. But, you know, in, in the same breath, you know, this this could be a property for two or three generations and they've done more than contribute their share back into the economy. That's the difficulties when you look at just one piece of a puzzle, you look at just the sale of agricultural land, you don't see the 40 years put into a business of that agricultural land and understand the taxation within those 40 years and how a lot of these landowners might actually be saying, you know, because of the, un- the, the, the new tax rules on passing down corporations, businesses to family members and how it's no longer favorable, favorable. It doesn't make sense for me to keep this land and pass down the business. Well, listen, you know, you and I have lots to talk about because, of course, we have to come east to Toronto and uh, a lot of stuff going on here. You know, yeah. we're looking at just some crazy, crazy numbers. Of course, you're, you're experiencing the same thing. So I'm going to ask for you to stay put. We're going to go to a quick break. And uh, when we come back, you and I can talk, uh, you know, more about the Toronto market. Folks, if you're just tuning in, I've got Romana King joining me and and when we come back, we're going to start talking about Toronto. So stay with us. We'll be right back after this. 
And welcome back. If you're just tuning in, I've got one of my major guests who joins me on a regular basis and always, uh, you know, just always great to have her on because she's got such a great uh, understanding of the real estate bar- market. It is uh, Ms. Romana King. And of course, you've seen her articles in Money Sense. She is a real estate expert. And Romana, just before the break, you're kind of filling us in on the BC market. And uh, as always, I always love to know what's going on in the West because the Vancouver market's been one of the hottest markets in the world, but of course, being uh, being from Toronto originally, and um, we've got a lot to talk about. You and I always do. Yes, <laughs> seems like Toronto is rebounding robustly. Well, you know, it, it, it's interesting because we've kind of got a couple of deadlines that are coming down right now. One, you know, one of the biggest ones, of course, is the new stress test for mortgages and the fact that starting in January, if you're going to qualify now for a five-year fixed mortgage, you know, you're going to have to qualify with basically, you know, two percent higher, so everything basically at post. And so this is this is one of the things that you know we're we're running with a hot market right now. You know, I was just talking to a few realtors they're like yeah we're getting multiple offers you know people are selling at a decent price right now even though we're coming into the christmas season you know it's still a really hot market do you think that this is a big driver with the new uh, the new stress test absolutely anytime you have any change in the market you have people scrambling to get ahead of that change um and i i I'm not at all surprised. This is typically a low, a lower season. People are not as busy. But even in the, I mean, in the Vancouver market and the Toronto market, we're talking to realtors on the ground, and those realtors are busy, very busy, closing deals, putting up listings. People are definitely trying to get ahead of this this new mortgage stress test that's coming out January first, twenty eighteen. Yeah. You know, I, I, I kind of wonder how quickly they're going to close, though, because, I mean, you know, here we are, we're, we're, you know, basically the first week of December, and all of a sudden, you know, people are, because I believe they have to fund by uh, by January 1st. Is that correct? They have to fund. I, I've been told by a few mortgage brokers that some of them are saying as long as it's written by December 31st, 2017, they'll, it'll be honored, it'll be okay. Um so as long as all the you know the finalized paperwork, even if it's closing, you know January, sometime in January, as long as the the paperwork is in and they've sort of solidified the deal, but that January first is is uh, is sort of the the, the drop dead deadline. Get it in before we know from prior years that when we've had a short um, short deadline. So I'm looking at the foreign buyer tax in in BC when they had six days, we had a huge rush on the market. Um, I anticipate the same thing. You're going to have a huge rush, short closing, even on paper, just to sort of try and get things pushed through before that deadline. Yeah, maybe a few people will get the get the funds, but they won't move out for you know a month or two <laughs> to give them some mm-hmm. time. You know, and 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 again, good good point about BC because that's what happened in BC. But in, if you remember here in Toronto, when the Wynn government decided, they just literally slammed it down that day, so there was no huge run up. <laughs> you know, it's sort of like, oh, by the way, um, so what time is it? Yeah, okay, it's now in in effect. Um, so I I don't think we're going to see that. Uh, let's let's flip over to the condominium market, and right now, you know, everybody is saying we. We aren't building enough condos. I mean, despite the fact that when you take a look at the skyline here, it's like all you do is see new condos going up, but we just don't have enough being built. What do you think? Well, this has been the argument for the last 20 years, actually. It's it's not a new argument. 
Um, we do see other countries, sorry, other cities in the world, other you know huge metropolises that realize densification is the only way to build when you're going to be a, a global city. Toronto, I think, has cross that point now. It's now a global city. We don't have people just moving from, you know, Newfoundland to Toronto. We have people moving from the UK. We have people moving from Europe to Toronto as a destination to live and work. And once you become a global city, you can't you can't ignore densification. And if you don't put those plans into effect, you're going to have problems. My husband and I, we recently took a trip down to San Francisco and realized how poorly Canadian cities have done when it comes to just dealing with densification and traffic and just densification for living. You know, you don't see a single family detached in San Francisco. They're all condos. They all look like family homes, but they're all condos. Right. And, and you know, when, when you talk about some of the other cities, you know, one of, one of the biggest you know, problems that we have here, obviously, is transit. And without proper transit, it doesn't matter. They're racking and stacking them here and yeah. it's just making more congestion. You know, there's all sorts of suggestions where, you know, you shut down King Street, you, you know, you redirect everything. But it is not, uh, you know, I, I would say part, probably the biggest problem with Toronto is not only going to be transit, but it's also the schooling, because the more people we put up in the sky, the more uh, the more that we're going to have to have decent schools that are being built that are in the, in the proximity. And Toronto could take a page from Vancouver and realize, you know, this has already happened in Canada. There was a whole segment in Langley and in uh, Metro Vancouver where parents were told, they moved into these condos and they were told, I'm sorry, we will not be able to accommodate your children in your local school. We just don't don't have the space. And that was kind of a, it was a juxtaposition between two different rulings. You had, you know, a whole bunch of condos go up and people move in so they can be in good school zones. And then the Supreme Court of of, uh, BC came in and said, listen, you can't, you can't just stuff kids into a classroom and go beyond a certain number of kids per class. We're going to cap it. We're going to say it's 20 kids per class or 24 per class. And that's it. And you had, you know, parents scrambling. What am I going to do? I can't send my children to the, the school that we were we thought they were going to go to. We moved, we bought this condo to be in the school zone, and now we can't even go to it. So Toronto can certainly learn from that, and we can all planners across Canada that that are looking at, you know, increasing the densification of each city need to realize it's not just moving people from place to place. It's it's also the amenities. I think Toronto realized with that King Street corridor. I mean, we have a house down in that that corridor. The densification in the last decade and the last two decades has been remarkable. You've got so many more people in that small little segment of the city moving and living and putting stresses on that on those uh, on those services. Yeah. Now, just um, you know, you and I always talk about uh, real estate investment, and so I just wanted to touch with you on this, and, and it's an important one. Is that you know a lot of people are still investing in condominiums. You know, builders are now putting them up. We're over eight hundred dollars a square foot. Eight eighteen is the average for a brand new condo being built right now. You know, and and yes, rents are up, but I'm still concerned because if we if we take a look at carrying a mortgage maintenance fees that are normally artificially low for the first year or two, plus property taxes, we've got most people in a negative cash position still because the prices yeah. have had such a run-up. Despite the fact that we keep talking about vacancy rates, we're still not seeing a huge push on the rents. And so I, I would say, should we still be cautioning investors buying the brand new stuff? Because that condominium fee, we, you and I both know, that's going to jump in the near future. Well, I totally agree with you, Todd, and I've always actually stated that, you know, when you're doing pre-sale condo investment, it's not really investment, it's speculation, and that's an entirely different breed of real estate investment. You know, 
for me, real estate investment, anytime you invest in anything, you've got all the parameters and all the, the variables laid out in front of you, and you can make very solid decisions, financial decisions based on that. When it comes to pre-sales, it's exactly what you said. You've got unknown costs that can really run up the expenses on an, on an annual basis. And when you're trying to extrapolate how much you're going to charge rent and how much your expenses are, and those are two unknowns. They're variables that have yet to be determined before you, t- you take possession. I, I just don't see that as real estate investment. I see it as speculation. If you've got deep pockets and you can a- add extra money to it so you can make the numbers work, perhaps it's a good idea. I still think that when you're looking at real estate investment, you should look at more known quantities. You should look at resale condos. You should look at uh, different different opportunities within the market that don't look at speculation, that don't look at variables. You have no idea of what to calculate in a year, two years, three years down the road. Yeah. You know, and this, this, this is the thing. My, my, always my biggest concern for investors is that, you know, when you determine what you are, it's either you're a speculator or an investor. Investor means that you're going to have positive cash flow. You're not paying out of your own pocket. Speculator is, hey, listen, I'm going to lose some money, hopefully to get some capital gains. And that's, that's the one that I think I'm the most concerned about. Let's jump into kind of the final topic, the Toronto Real Estate Board, of course, the, the ones who have been the gatekeeper for all the information it looks like they will no longer be the ones that are keeping all the information that it's going to be uh, open to the public what's your take on this because this has been a tough one for a while well they've been fighting for a while um i'm not surprised i really am not i think the writing was on the wall we, we've had you know judgments from the competition uh bureau tribunal uh they've made their pronouncements they've had you know multi-page documents you know justifying their their decisions. So for them to come down and actually say, no, you have to release this, you cannot be the gatekeepers, it's a lack of competition to deny uh, VOWs, which is the virtual offices, um, the ability to use this information in you know a non-price competition way. We're not surprised. I, I, uh, we're, we're not surprised also that the TREB has been so adamant about fighting this. They are tasked with trying to keep their profession to, uh, you know, to have the best competitive value in the market and to be gatekeepers is to have competitive value so for treb to fight that was what they that was their their mandate they, they need to fight for their their professions um but we're not surprised that they've lost the competition bureaus come in you know treb is going to probably find different ways to to fight this but i think really the writing is on the wall they've lost this fight yeah, and and uh, I'm sure that you know they've always been going after the appeal process on this, and because they they believe that they they are doing doing good by the public, because again, it's that whole idea of privacy that you cannot allow people to know, you know, basically the inner workings of a deal. But you know, there's been there's been people that have been stepping on over the line. There's been a lot of gray area for years on this. Um, do you do you think that this is going to you know have more startup companies that may, maybe are not, you know, licensed realtors that are going to start providing more information to the public at a, at, you know, very easily. And, and do you think we're going to see more of this? Yes, I think you're going to see more competition in the, in the sort of the tech space. I know my, my organization, Zolo, is one of them. And there's um, Redfin and Dillow in the States have actually suggested that they're interested in the Canadian market if data becomes available. We have to understand, you know, there's a precedent here. It is a, it is a cross-country precedent, but America has an entirely different model when it comes to privacy. And we're talking about a country that takes privacy very seriously. America takes, you know, privacy and, and the right to, to make decisions for oneself very seriously. And yet you can get all manner of information when it comes to residential resale um, information. Uh, Canada, I think, 
protects personal privacy a bit better. But the reality is, and this is why Treb lost this, this, this fight, is the reality is this information has already been made available in different ways. You can go and pay $10 and get a title search and get all the information you want. If you're a homeowner, you can go and log into your you know, property tax file, and you can see what your, your neighbor paid for the house next door. So this information is already made available. It's not a privacy issue. Um, so because it's not a privacy issue and the information is made available, these new companies were not waiting for the the, the data to be made available, what they were waiting for is a systematized, you know, way to aggregate all this information in a fairly easy way so that they could use it in a, a meaningful way for the public to actually have the data made available to them. That's what we were waiting for. And, and when Treb is ordered to open up these doors, that's what's been made available is that it's now an aggregate batch of information that they now are provided, you know, where they can, they can use the raw data to, to, to do things with. And that's exciting. Listen, Romano, always a pleasure having you on, and and I thank you once again for joining us today because it's uh, it's great to get uh, you know your perspective on things always, and um, you know I uh, I wish you and your family all the best for the holidays, and we'll definitely have to touch base in January to find out what is going on in the market. Yes, absolutely. Always a pleasure having Romano King join me, and uh, you know what, some great information. One of the reasons why I like having her on the show so much is the fact that when we do talk about the Vancouver market. It's kind of, it's it's almost like it's six to twelve months ahead of the Toronto market. So you know, us knowing on what's going on out there always will help us kind of do a little bit more of a prediction here in Toronto. I hope you enjoyed the show. You know what? I always love looking back at some of the amazing guests that I've had on and uh, sharing with you again so much information. It's been one of those years, and there's a lot to share. I want to thank my producer, as usual, Ian Grant, for keeping it simple, and especially at this time of year, you know, it gets a little bit more difficult. And I want to thank you, the listeners, and also wish you and your family all the best for Christmas. You know, it's that time of year. Remember, I'm going to be back next Saturday, just before the new year at 3 p.m. I'm your host, Todd C. Slater, and wishing you and your family all the best for the holidays. You've been listening to Simply Real Estate right here on News Talk 1010.